0: This is a QAMR Berghofer Medical Research Institute podcast. It's the diagnosis no one wants. Cancer can happen at any age, but are there ways you can reduce your risk? I'm Claire Blake, you're listening to Body Lab. Professor David Whiteman studied medicine at UQ, but soon headed into research with fellowships at Oxford and a Fulbright scholarship in Seattle. He's now a senior scientist and deputy director, also heads the Cancer Control Group and has dedicated his career to finding out the risks of cancer. Hi David. G'day Claire, how are you doing? We often hear people talk about the cure for cancer, especially you, but cancer isn't a single disease, it's quite complex.
1: Yeah, cancer is really a process. So when uh, in pathology as students we learn about the disease processes, we learn about infections and inflammation and cancer is like one of those, it's a general description of a process in which the body cells have lost control and continue to grow. And cancers can occur in many different organs in the body. And so there are as many types of cancer as there are organs in the body and then some.
0: What are the causes like genetic, environmental, age? Can you narrow that down?
1: Yes, you can. You can start broadly like uh, at that high level to, to partition the causes into these broad categories. So we tend to think of things that exist outside of the body as environment and lifestyle and then things that are inside the body, can be genetic, they can be molecular, um, but we tend to break them down into smaller and smaller root causes until we find out for sure what what causes particular kinds of cancer.
0: You're an epidemiologist now, so what is the focus of your research?
1: Yeah, so epidemiology, uh, I like to think we're the new rock stars in this post-COVID world. Uh, (laughs) No one knew what an epidemiologist was before. They used to think we were some kind of skin doctor that looked at people's skin, like a dermatologist or something. But uh, epidemiologists, Uh, really study disease in populations. We look at how common diseases are, in whom they occur, uh, have there been changes over time. And then different branches of epidemiology look at the causes of disease. And so that's what I do. I look at the causes and the sort of predisposing factors for cancers. Um, My own work is is, uh, predominantly in skin cancer and melanoma, but over my career I've looked at many different kinds Mm. of cancer and, and some of my work is still broad at that level.
0: How do epidemiologists establish or prove what factors might increase our risk of cancer or survival?
1: Yeah, it's a sort of uh, eternal question in epidemiology. When can you call something a cause? Yeah. um so about sixty or seventy years ago, some pioneering epidemiologists uh, developed a sort of core philosophy of epidemiology, and there are there are criteria for establishing causality. And so you know you have to have, Uh, a risk factor that is consistently observed across different populations. It has to be a certain magnitude of effect, a strong risk factor. Um, You like to see that there's analogies from maybe the the same risk factor acting in different parts of the body in, in similar ways to cause disease. So there's a whole bunch of different criteria that we sort of checklist off before we have the courage to call it a cause. But your original question is, how do you look at risk factors? Well, what we tend to do is do large studies, gathering information on many people who have the cancer that you're focused on, and then a representative group of other people who don't have that cancer, controls, we call those people. And then we gather information from those two groups of people and compare them, and things start to emerge that are different in the people who have cancer, and then you can start saying, okay, those things that differ between those two groups of people that's interesting. We, we've got to find out more about that and that, that becomes a risk factor.
0: There's huge amounts of data that you need to collect and I know that's part of your job, finding those people to participate. Is that the hardest?
1: Oh, it's one of the hardest. The hardest part is getting the money in the first place, actually. So oh. as, as researchers, we spend a lot of time writing grant applications and that's where you have to be able to uh, put forward your hypothesis, put forward your research proposal and have other people criticize that to the nth degree and it's got to be a better proposal than all the other ones that are out there at the same time so getting the money is hard once you have the money then yes in epidemiology recruiting people into studies is also hard but you know we've had a good good success here at the institute a lot of people know about our work and so when we send out letters a lot of people say yes i'll take part but it, it takes a while to build that reputation and that's something we we treasure
0: and you also looked at how many cases of cancer and deaths from cancer and those different lifestyle or environmental factors are responsible for.
1: Yeah, and that, that work is um, uses actually national data sets. So health departments around the world, and particularly in Australia, keep records of particular notifiable diseases, you know, for things like rabies or particular kinds of infectious diseases. But they also keep very good records on occurrences of cancer. So every time a cancer diagnosis is made in Australia, that event is registered in a very secure database. But as researchers, if we meet certain criteria and can guarantee the privacy and safety of that data, then we can also access those registrations of cancer. And so that's a very powerful tool for looking at uh, historical trends in cancer incidents. Does it affect men and women differently, different age groups differently? Has it changed over time? And that gives you really strong clues that things might be changing in, in the world of cancer. I've seen that in my career in a number of different cancers. So it's a those things are very powerful tools, but it doesn't require us to recruit patients. That, that data exists.
0: And that's all de-identified, so you never know who these people are.
1: That's right, and, and uh, that data is um, very, very secure, but it's quite rich. It, it carries a lot of information, so there's a lot of important insights that can be gleaned from that kind of data set.
0: You've been able to put a number on just how many cancers in Australia could be prevented each year if everyone followed advice, as well as the number of cancer deaths that could be prevented. Those numbers are pretty extraordinary, aren't they?
1: Yeah, they are. So this is work that we did uh, with the Cancer Council. We started in about 2010 on this work. Their question was, if we could prevent cancer through things that we know about now, how many cases of cancer could we prevent in Australia each year? that would seem like a simple question there's actually a lot behind that so our group teamed up with others around the world so first of all what you have to come up with is a list of uh, factors that everyone agrees do cause cancer and we had a list of about 13 factors that are changeable that you can modify your exposure as a human you can choose to smoke or not smoke drink alcohol not drink alcohol eat a healthy diet exercise more these are things you can change for which there is strong evidence that they are also mm-hmm. causes of cancer. And so the, the answer we came up with was in Australia each year, out of the 140,000 cases of cancer each year, about 40,000 of them could be prevented through things that we already know about now. So that's you know about one in three, a little bit under one in three cancers could be prevented.
0: That, that puts a lot of it back in our own hands. That's an extraordinary number.
1: It is an extraordinary number. Um, now, knowing it is one thing, doing it is quite another mm. That is the challenge, and some of these things are not easily changeable. I mean, the requirements uh, for physical activity means about sixty minutes of act, of high level activity a day. That's almost unattainable for most people.
0: And high level of activity is different as you go through the different demographics. So, say if you're seventy, you need to get your heart rate up to say sixty percent.
1: Yeah, that's right. It, it, there are there are different thresholds for what constitutes high level activity, but requirement of getting 60 minutes a day is the same for everybody so you know that's a lot of activity and, and beyond what most western lifestyles can afford to dedicate to exercise so so that's the absolute gold standard of what we could reduce our cancer burden by but we should still aspire to do that even doing some is better than doing nothing.
0: Well there's so many things that can Influence our risk, I suppose. And I know you're very careful to use the word cause. What are the best things that the average person can start doing to minimize their risk? Outside of the exercise, then there's diet.
1: There's diet. I mean, I would start at the very top of the list to say the best thing you can do is never start smoking, ever. Smoking causes more cancers than any other thing in the world. It's preventable. Uh, in fact, there's no redeeming qualities to it. So my message to everyone is never smoke. If you do smoke, quit. Quit now. Um,
0: And then let's work down from there. I imagine alcohol is next.
1: Actually, alcohol is not the next one. There's there's a sort of a a bit of a a tight spot for second, third and fourth place. But um, actually in Australia, sunlight is a very important cause of cancer when you talk about melanomas and skin cancers. Now, they don't kill a lot of people, but their toll on the health system is huge. And you only have to walk the streets of... Australian cities to see the amount of sun damage that's out there. And, you know, each year in Australia, we lose thousands of people to melanoma and skin cancer, and these are almost entirely preventable. So sunlight in Australia is actually one of our biggest causes of cancer. Um, And then you've got things like diet, uh, which is composed of different parts of the diet. So eating too much red meat, insufficient fruit, insufficient vegetables and insufficient fibre. And in totality, those four components of diet that cause cancer contribute, you know, about four or five percent of the total cancer burden in Australia that's preventable each year. So it's, you know, again, that's thousands of people.
0: The World Health Organization declared processed meat was a carcinogen a while ago and red meat was probably carcinogenic to humans. Can we eat any amount of processed meat safely?
1: Well, This was a very controversial ruling from the WHO. uh, And, you know, the jury uh, goes backwards and forwards on whether this was a sensible proclamation to make. Mm. Um, But the evidence is the evidence and the data are the data. So uh, people who eat red meat have higher risks of bowel cancer than people who don't eat red meat, than vegetarians. And that's an inescapable fact. But red meat has many benefits as well, Uh, you know, vitamin B12 and protein and iron and things like this. So, It's actually an important part of your diet. A lot of the effect of meat comes from the way it's cooked. So when people cook it at high temperatures or they fry it or they broil it as they do in America or barbecue it.
0: So all the good bits, you say?
1: Yeah, all the tasty bits. That process of cooking at high temperatures leads to compounds, charcoal-type compounds on the outside that are actually quite potent carcinogens. So a, a lot of the effect, we think, is from the way it's cooked. And so people can substitute with white meats, fish, chicken, things like that. Do and it in a slow cooker. Or do it in a slow cooker.
0: Do people need to go how far? Do we need to live on kale and mung beans? Or is there a balance, like you said before, fruit and vegetables?
1: Yeah, look, and I'm not here to give lifestyle advice. I just, I particularly look at the data. I don't give um, cooking advice either, I've got to tell you. So, uh, so, you know, in my own personal life, I eat meat. And I still like to eat meat. I think it's an important part of my diet. But I am mindful that uh, I don't need all that much of it to be healthy. And I also know that if I eat meat that's been cooked in these various ways, that there is a risk. I mean, there is an inescapable risk that, that will cause damage to my colon, and therefore there's a risk of cancer in the future. So it's, a, you know, it's like a lot of things in life. You have to be able to weigh the risks and benefits.
0: And of course, if we're too prescriptive in advice and it seems too hard to follow, then some people won't try it or something is better than nothing.
1: Yeah. And look, it's fair to say, though, even in Australia and New Zealand and the US, the quantities of meat that people eat, the red meat, is actually decreasing over time as a sort of natural change in the way people eat these days. Um, And in fact, you'd be surprised maybe to think that our alcohol consumption has also decreased quite markedly per unit of population. So there are still some people who drink a lot. But in the main, people drink less now than they did a generation ago. So these are sort of cultural changes that sweep through society as well. So in some ways, um, the work gets easier as we learn more and everyone changes.
0: Does your evidence show that there is a safe level of alcohol or is none the best?
1: Again, this is where the data come in. Uh, People have looked at this question really in a lot of detail as well. But when you draw the regression plots, that is, you know, comparing alcohol intake with risks of cancer, there really doesn't seem to be a threshold for cancers. Even at low intakes of cancer, people have a slightly higher risk than people who who don't drink at all. So the advice at the moment is there is no safe, totally safe lower limit of alcohol. But really, when when you look at the data, most of the bad effects are coming at higher levels of drinking, quite markedly higher levels of drinking. So many doctors would still choose to drink a little bit in moderation.
0: <laughs> it's, is cancer becoming more common or is it better diagnosed?
1: Well, a bit of both, um, but it is becoming more common uh, and a large part of that is driven by our ageing population. So uh, cancer becomes more common as we age because uh, more things can go wrong in your cells, they get more mutations and bad things happen. Um, so as we age, uh, cancer becomes more common uh, we also survive more, if you know what I mean. So people have lived through those uh, diseases of early childhood that used to take people out. Um, so there's there's more of us surviving into ages at which we get cancer, as well as age being a risk factor on its own. And then, yes, we are diagnosing more. So because of things like screening programs, mm-hmm. prostate screening, bowel cancer screening, breast cancer screening, we have more people who live with cancer than die from cancer. So that's all part of the equation.
0: You mentioned melanoma and skin cancer before you're one of Australia's leading skin cancer and melanoma researchers. Do we know what proportion of melanomas is caused by that sunlight?
1: Yeah, for melanomas, uh, the estimates are somewhere between eighty and ninety percent are caused by sunlight. some Some people might say it's even higher than that, but I think our data suggests it's about eighty to ninety percent, and so uh, that means a proportion of them are going to happen anyway, are sort of genetically programmed to occur. And we know that from a, a range of different scenarios. But even when you go right back into Victorian England, when people were sort of working 12-hour days, six hours a day down the coal mines, covered from head to toe, wearing hats all of the time, there was still a, a melanoma rate that occurred in the population and people had would die from melanoma even in England, even in the 1800s. So, And that's when data were pretty reliable and the diagnosis was reliable. So there's always been a baseline rate of melanoma Mm. but we've seen an explosion since people white-skinned people arrived in australia and and lived in this tropical environment and uh, didn't cover up
0: what are the other most common cancers
1: in australia uh in the western world so in men prostate cancer is the most common followed by bowel cancer uh, and then lung cancer in women it's breast cancer bowel cancer, lung cancer, and then melanoma comes in at number four or number three. It changes a little bit each year. Those Mm. cancers occur at about the same rate.
0: And some are more deadly.
1: They are. So different cancers in different organs of the body go bad at different rates. And it tends to be that cancers that are in organs that are deeply buried in the body, so things like pancreatic cancer, ovarian cancer, brain cancer, do badly. And A part of that is that they're hard to diagnose until they're quite large and quite advanced, and so people don't even know that they've got them until the tumour is spread, and that's very hard to treat. But some cancers are just very aggressive from the get-go. They're difficult for clinicians to to know what to do with.
0: And some respond better to treatment, and I know that you've also studied a lot of esophageal cancer. Is that on the rise?
1: It has been, yeah. So there's there's two main different types of cancer of the esophagus. It's... um, one of those organs that can get different populations of cells can get the cancer. In the past, the common kind that used to occur in Australia was caused by smoking and alcohol. It was typically a disease seen in, in sort of you know down and outs in a way, Pe- mm. people who did a lot of damage to their body through smoking and alcohol. Um, but there's another kind called adenocarcinoma of the esophagus. It's become much more common in Australia and America and, and Northern Europe in about the last 30 years. And it seems that that's related to um, reflux, acid reflux coming up from the stomach into the esophagus, but also obesity. And it's much more common in men than women, about eight times more common in men than in women. So That
0: type of esophageal cancer or es- both?
1: No, just that kind, that one kind. What appears to be driving it, we've done a lot of research in this area and, and others have too, but it appears to be that the way in which men become obese is they get the beer belly, they get deposits of fat in the abdomen. And that kind of fat location leads to the fat uh, releasing all kinds of inflammatory mediators that seems to have a potent effect on the esophagus. So that appears to be what's driving it.
0: Similar to heart disease where if the fat is hard and close to the organs, it's a bit more dangerous.
1: Yeah, it doesn't seem to be a physical proximity thing. It's more that the fat that occurs in the abdomen, which which men tend to put down, that sort of beer belly type of fat, is more metabolically active. Women tend to put fat down underneath their skin, so it's called subcutaneous fat. Getting into the details,
0: we um, start out with a lot more of that anyway, don't yeah, we? Yeah,
1: but it, yeah, well, and yeah, so men and women have different body shapes and different different depositions of fat around the body, um, and women's fat or subcutaneous fat, even in men tends to uh, release estrogens and hormones, whereas male patterned fat is more metabolic. And so it, it releases things that tend to be bad for us.
0: How far have we come in cancer treatment? It seems like we're really on the edge of new knowledge.
1: Oh, we definitely are. I mean, even in my career, when I first started going to melanoma conferences back in the 1990s, the 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 treatments for melanoma that were advanced were just non existent they were terrible, and the conferences would always close on a slightly dismal note because uh while progress was made in treating the primary cancer with an excision surgical approach that was pretty good, if the melanomas had spread to other parts of the body, then the chemotherapy just didn't work, mm. and radiotherapy didn't work and Then about ten years ago, these new treatments, these immune modulating treatments started to first appear and showed a bit of promise. And in the period of time since then, they've just revolutionised melanoma treatment and and they're starting to be used in other cancers as well. Some
0: lung cancers, is that right?
1: Yeah, certain types of lung cancer, certain types of kidney cancer, um, so head and neck cancers. So they're being used for numbers of different cancers and, and now that we have some of the secrets of how those therapies work, they can be targeted and sort of reprogrammed to work for a lot of different cancers. So there's a lot of hope that we can trick the body's immune system into fighting these cancers for us.
0: And enjoy those conferences a little bit more.
1: Hopefully, yeah. Hopefully they're more positive. Yes.
0: <laughs> David, is there one thing about cancer prevention and survival that you just wish everybody knew?
1: Well, that's a very good question. I really I really strongly believe that we should make sure people never smoke. It is it's a terrible habit. It has terrible consequences. But going beyond that, I think leading a active healthy lifestyle and eating well, eating diversely, they're really quite low-tech solutions that people can adopt in their own life to minimising their risk of cancer. And they go a long way, keeping their weight under control. But if you're being active and eating well, you won't have to worry about your weight. So that package of lifestyle can actually have a big effect.
0: And where do you sit on sunscreen?
1: Oh, yes. Uh, Yeah, sunscreen is something you really have to use every day in, in Australia, particularly in northern Australia and Queensland and particularly in the summer months. Um, slip, slop, slap, so important. And start young, you know, start young.
0: This information is general in nature. For personal advice, your own health professional is definitely the best choice. Thank you very much, David. It's been fascinating. And for more on Professor David Whiteman's extraordinary contributions and current work and any of our research, qimrberghofer.edu.au Thanks, David.
1: Thank you.